Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good day, good day, you amazing people, and I hope I start your wonderful week off with a pip and a pop. Mates, you might still be able to hear it. I'm still, believe it or not, sick. I'm not really in any pain per se, like I was last week, but I'm at a point where my throat is still royally messed up, and my nose is completely clogged. And every couple of sentences, my ears pop. Just my sinuses playing up. But I'm much better, really, I am. Just not good enough at a performing level. But I'm not going to leave you without an episode, or a double episode of a remastered old-time radio show. I wanted to shake it up and give my voice a chance, in a way, to recover, but also still perform for you lovely people. So I've narrated two fairy tales, one from China about the ghost who was spoiled, and the second tale, Prince Spinhead and Snow White from Dutch Origins. I've also been given access to The Mid Journey, which is artificial AI that will create an image based off of my wording. So all of my patrons can see the amazing pictures AI creates for both fairy tales. Now I hope you enjoy both your tales, I'll be back to normal by next week I think, and without further ado, let's begin. There are ghosts of many kinds, but the ghosts of those who have hung themselves are the worst. Such ghosts are always coaxing other living people to hang themselves from the beams of roofs. If they succeed in persuading someone to hang himself, then the road to the netherworld is open to them, and they can once more enter into the wheel of transformation. The following story of such a ghost is told by persons worthy of belief. The title of this story is... The ghost who was spoiled. Once upon a time, there lived a man in Tsing Xiaofu, who had passed his military examination and had been ordered to Xianfu to report for duty. It was at the season of rains. So it happened that evening came on before he could reach the town inn where he had expected to pass the night. Just as the sun was setting, he reached a small village and asked for a night's lodging. But there were only poor families in the village who had no room for him in their huts. So they directed him to an old temple which stood outside the village and said he could spend the night there. The images of the gods in the temple were all decayed so that one could not distinguish one from the other. Thick spiderwebs covered the entrance and the dust lay inches high everywhere. So the soldier went out into the open. We found an old flight of steps. He spread out his knapsack on a stone step, tied his horse to an old tree, took his flask from his pocket and drank, for it had been a hot day. There had been a heavy rain, but it had just cleared again. The new moon was on the decline. The soldier closed his eyes and tried to sleep. Suddenly, he heard a rustling sound in the temple, and a cool wind passed over his face and made him shudder, and he saw a woman come out of the temple dressed in an old dirty red gown, and with a face as white as chalk wall. She stole past quietly, as though she were afraid of being seen. The soldier knew no fear, so he pretended to be asleep and did not move, but watched her with the half-shut eyes, and he saw her draw a rope from her sleeve and disappear. Then he knew that she was the ghost of one who had hung herself. He got up softly, and followed her, and, sure enough, 
she went into the village. When she came to a certain house, she slipped into the court through a crack in the door. The soldier leaped over the wall after her. It was a house with three rooms. In the rear room, a lamp was burning dimly. The soldier looked through the window into the room, and there was a young woman of about twenty sitting on the bed, sighing deeply, and her handkerchief was wet through with tears. Beside her lay a little child asleep. The woman looked up towards the beam of the ceiling. One moment she would weep, and the next she would stroke the child. When the soldier looked more closely, there was the ghost sitting up on the beam. She had passed the rope around her neck and was hanging herself in dumb show. And whenever she beckoned with her hand, the woman looked up toward her. This went on for some time. Finally, the woman said, "You say it would be best for me to die. Very well then, I will die, but I cannot part from my child." And once more she burst into tears, but the ghost merely laughed and coaxed her again. So the woman said determinedly, "It is enough. I will die." With these words, she opened her chest of clothes, put on new garments, and painted her face before the mirror. Then she drew up a bench and climbed up upon it. She undid her girdle and knotted it into the beam. She had already stretched forth her neck and was about to leap from the bench, when the child suddenly awoke and began to cry. The woman climbed down again, and soothed and quieted her child. And while she was petting it, she wept. So that the tears fell from her eyes like a string of pearls. The ghost frowned and hissed, for it feared to lose its prey. In a short time, the child had fallen asleep again, and the woman once more began to look aloft. Then she rose again, climbed on the bench, and was about to lay the noose about her neck, when the soldier began to call out loudly and drum on the window pane. Then he broke it and climbed into the room. The woman fell to the ground, and the ghost disappeared. The soldier recalled the woman to consciousness, and then he saw something hanging down from the beam, like a cord without an end, knowing that it belonged to the ghost of the hanged woman. He took and kept it. Then he said to the woman, "Take good care of your child. You have but one life to lose in this world." And with that, he went on. Then it occurred to him that his horse and his baggage were still in the temple, and he went there to get them. When he came out of the village, there was the ghost waiting for him in the road. The ghost bowed and said, "I have been looking for a substitute for many years, and today, when it seemed as though I should really get one, you came along and spoiled my chances. So there is nothing more." For me to do, yet there is something which I left behind me in my hurry. You surely must have found it, and I will ask you to return it to me. If I only have this one thing, may not having found a substitute will not worry me. Then the soldier showed her the rope and said with a laugh, "Is this the thing you mean? Why, if I were to give it back to you, then someone is sure to hang themselves, and that I could not allow." With these words, he wound the rope around his arm, drove her off, and said, "Now be off with you."
but then the ghost grew angry. Her face turned greenish-black, her hair fell in wild disorder down her neck, her eyes grew bloodshot, and her tongue hung far out of her mouth. She stretched forth both hands and tried to seize the soldier, but he struck out at her with his clenched fist. By mistake, he hit himself in the nose and it began to bleed. Then he sprinkled a few drops of blood in her direction and, since the ghosts cannot endure human blood, she ceased her attack, moved off a few paces and began to abuse him. This she did for some time until the cock in the village began to crow. Then the ghost disappeared. In the meantime, the farmer folk of the village had come to thank the soldier. It seems that after he had left the woman, her husband had come home and asked his wife what had happened, and then for the first time, he had learned what had occurred. So they all set out together along the road in order to look for the soldier outside the village. When they found him, he was still beating the air with his fists and talking wildly. So they called out to him and he told them what had taken place. The rope could still be seen on his bare arm, yet it had grown fast to it, and surrounded it in the shape of a red ring of flesh. The day was just dawning, so the soldier swung himself into his saddle and rode away. This tale has been handed down traditionally, and is given as told among the people. The origin of this tale comes straight from the Chinese fairy book. Prince Spinhead and Miss Snow White Long, long ago, before the Romans came into the land and when the fairies ruled in the forest, there was a maiden who lived under an oak tree. When she was a baby, they called her Bundlekin. She had four brothers who loved their youngest sister very dearly, and did everything they could to make her happy. Her fat father was a famous hunter, when he roamed the woods no bear, wolf, oryx, roebuck, deer or big animal of any kind could escape from his arrows, his spear, or his pit trap. He taught his sons to be skillful in the chase, but also to be kind to the dumb creatures when captured, especially when the mother beast was killed. The boys were always told to care for the cubs, whelps and kittens. As for the smaller animals, foxes, hares, weasels, rabbits and ermine, these were so numerous that the father left the business of hunting them to the lads, who had great sport. The house under the oak tree was always well provided with meat and furs. The four brothers brought the little animals, which they took in the woods, to make presents to their sister. So there was always a plenty of pets, bear and wolf cubs, wildcats, kittens and baby aurochs for the girl to play with. Every day while the animals were so young as to be fed on milk, she enjoyed frolicking with the four-footed babies. When they grew bigger, she romped and sported with them as if she and they were equal members of the same family. The older brother watched carefully so that the little brutes, as they increased in size, should not bite or claw his sister. For he knew the fierce nature that was in wild creatures. Yet the maiden had wonderful power over these beasts of the forests, 
whether little or big. She was not very much afraid of them and often made them run by looking at them hard in the eye. While the girl made a pet of the animals, her parents made a pet of her. The mother prepared the skins of the wolves and bears until these were very soft, keeping the fur on to make rugs for the floor and winter coats for her children. The hides of the aurochs sufficed for rougher use, but from what had once been the clothes of the fawn, the weasel, the rabbit, and the ermine, garments were made that were smooth enough to suit a baby's tender flesh. The forest folk wrapped their infants in swaddling hands made of these dressed pelts. After feeding the darling, a mother hung her baby up, warmly covered to a tree branch. The cradle, which was a fairy bag, was made of the same material and swung in the wind. Bundlekin usually fell asleep right after she had had her breakfast. When she woke up crowing, the squirrels were playing all around her. She even learned to watch the spiders spinning their houses of silk without being afraid. When Bundlekin grew up, she always called this curious creature that could make silk spinhead. She jokingly called it her lover in remembrance of baby days. It was funny to see how deaf the mother was with her needles fashioned from bone and her rough thread which was made of the intestine of a deer. From her own childhood in the woods, Bundlekin's mother had been used to this kind of dressmaking. Now, when her daughter had grown, from babyhood and through her teens to be a lovely maiden, fair of face and strong of limb. Her sweet, unselfish parent was equal to new tasks. To the soft leather coats made from the skins of fawns, martens and weasels, she added trimming of snow-white ermine, caps and mittens, cloaks for the body, and covering for the feet were fashioned to fit neatly. Fringes here and there were put on them, until her girl looked like a king's daughter. In summer, the skins of birds and their feathers clothed her lightly and with many a rich colour, while the forest flowers decked her hair. In winter, in her white forest robes, the maiden, except for her rosy face and sparkling eyes, seemed as if she might have been born of the snow, or was a daughter of the northern ice god at Ulrum. And because she was so lovely, her parents changed her baby name and called her Drifa, which means Snow White. Yet, though no other girl in Gilderland equaled, and none, not even the princesses, excelled Snow White in beauty of face, form, or raiment, the maiden was not happy. Even though many lovers came to her and offered to marry her, some, as proof of their skill as hunters, brought the finest furs the forest furnished. Others showed their strength, or fleetness of foot, some bargained with the caputeers, or fairies of the mines, to bring to them shining ore or precious gems which they offered to Snow White. Others again went afar to get strange wonders, Amberger and Ambergus, from the seashores of the far north to please her. One fine fellow who had been in the south and was proud of his travels told her of what he had seen in the great cities, and offered her a necklace of pearls. But all was in vain. Every lover went away sorrowful, for Snow White wearied of them and sent each one home, disappointed. Last of all, among the lovers came a strange-looking one, named Spinhead, resembling a spider, promising a secret worth more than furs, gold, 
gems or necklace. But the mother, seeing the ugly creature, drove it off with harsh words. So the months and years passed until her father feared he would not live to see his daughter a wife. But one day, when all in the household were absent, the leaves of the oak tree rustled loudly. There was no wind, and Snow White, surprised, strained her ears to find out what this might mean. Soon, she could make out these words: "When the spider that you called Spinhead comes to make love to you, listen to him. He is the wisest being in all the forest. He knows the future. He will tell you a secret." I shall pass away, but what he teaches you shall live. Then the leaves of the oak ceased to rustle, and all was quiet and still again. While wondering what this message might mean, down came the real spider she had named Spinhead. He lowered himself from a tree branch high above on a silken thread. The creature sat down on the log beside the maiden, but she was not in the least startled. And did not scream nor run away. Indeed, she spoke to the spider, as an old friend. Well, playmate of my babyhood, what have you to tell me? I came to offer you my love. You need not marry me yet, but if you will let me spin a web in your room, I shall live there, and by and by reward you. Let me be in your sight always, and you will not be sorry for it. The maiden had no sooner agreed than a terrible tempest uprooted the oak and levelled the trees of the forest. In a moment more, a new and very beautiful house rose up out of the ground. It was as noble to look at as a palace. Nearby was a garden, and one day, when she walked in it, out of it sprang a blue flower, almost under her feet. Choose the best room for your own self," said Spinhead, "and then show me my corner." After a hundred days, if you treat me kindly, I shall reveal the secret of that blue flower. Drifa, the maiden, chose the sunniest room and gave Spinhead the best corner, near the window and close to the ceiling. At once, he began to weave a shining web for his own house. She wondered at such fine work, which no human weaver could excel, and why she was not able to spin silk out of her head. Nor even with her fingers, like her strange lover. But the oak had promised that Spinhead would reveal a secret, and she was curious to know what it was. Like all girls, she was in a hurry to have the secret, to ease her impatience. Drifa looked on while Spinhead was thus busy at making his dwelling place, with shining threads which he spun out, never ceasing. She was so intent upon watching him that night came down before she noticed. That her room was not furnished; there was not even a bed to sleep on. Spinhead looked at her closely, and then spoke with a deep voice, like a man's. Ah, I know you want a bed and pretty things for your room. In another moment, soft furs lined the floor, and soon all that Drifa had possessed in the forest for comfort she had now, and more. Lost in wonder as she was, in a few minutes. She was fast asleep. She dreamed she wore a dress of some strange new white fabric, such as her people had never seen before. Instead of being close in texture, like the skin of an animal, it was as open work, full of thousands of little holes, yet strongly held together. It was light and gauzy, 
like a silvery spider's web on the summer grass before sunrise, when pearly with dewdrops. The hundred days were passing swiftly by, and Spinhead and Snow White had become fast friends. Each lived in a different world, a world within a world. She was waiting for the secret he would tell her. She bravely resolved not to be impatient, but let Spinhead speak first. One day, when autumn had come and she was lonely, she sauntered out into the garden. The chill winds were blowing and the leaves falling, till they covered the ground like a yellow carpet. One fell into her hand as if it bore words of friendly greeting. Yet, though she waited, not one of the millions of them brought a message to her. Never a word had she ever heard from her parents and brothers. The blue flower had long ago fallen away, and there was nothing in its place but a hard, rough, black stalk. Then she said to herself, Is there anything in this ugly stick? How will Spinhead reveal his secret? Never had she been so cast down. Again the tempest howled, all the winds of heaven seemed to have broken loose. Many a sturdy oak lay prostrate, the leaves darkened the air, so that Snow White could see nothing. Then there was a great calm. The maiden cleared her sight, and lo, there beside her stood a youth more beautiful than any of her brothers or her lovers or any man she'd ever seen. He was dressed in fine white clothing, excelling in its texture any skin or form, or animal of the forest. Instead of being leather, however soft, it seemed woven of a multitude of threads. In his hand he held the black stalk of what had been the blue flower. I am Spinhead, he said. The hundred days are over. The spell is broken, and my deliverance from enchantment has come. I bring to you as my gift this ugly stalk on which the blue flower blew. Between surprise at the change of Spinhead from a spider to a handsome youth, and disappointment at such a present offered her, Snow White was dumb. She could hardly draw her breath. Was that all? Break it open, said Spinhead. Splitting the stalk from end to end, the maiden was surprised to find, inside, many long, silky fibers, almost as fine as the strands in a spider's web. She pulled them out, and her eyes danced with joy. Plant the seed and let the blue flowers blossom by the million, said the youth. Then gather the stalks, and from the fibers, weave them together and make this. The black rod is a scepter of wealth. Then, separating the delicate strands one by one, Spinhead wove them together. The result was a rich robe of a snow-white fabric never seen in the forest. It was linen. Snow White clapped her hand with joy. "'Tis for your wedding dress, if you will marry me," said Spinhead. Snow White's cheeks blushed red, but she looked at him and her eyes said, "'Yes.' "'Wait,' said Spinhead. "'I'll make you a bridal veil.' Once more his fingers wrought wonders. He produced yards of a gauzy open work stuff. He made it float in the air first, then he threw it over her head. It trailed down her back and covered her rosy face. It was of lace. Happily married, they left the forest and travelled into the land where the blue flax flowers made a new sky on the earth. 
Soon on the map, men read the names of cities unknown before, at a time when Europe had no such masses of happy people, joyous in their toil. Courtrea, Tournai, Ypres, Ghent, and Bruges told what the blue flower of the flax had done for the country. More than gold, gems, or the wealth of forest or mine, was the gift of Spinhead to Snow White for making the Belgic land. A tale written by William Elliot Griffiths, a Dutch tale. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to have a rest. My throat is super parched. But I think I'll be tip-top next Monday, back into the routine of the usual episodes and thank yous. I should be at a state where I can actually narrate The Soul of Lilith, chapters 7 and 8. So stick with me next Monday for that episode. And stay awesome, you lovely people. See you soon.